0: Hello and welcome to The Aside, a podcast for drama students and teachers. Today, part 3 of our interview with James Evans, the uh, director of Bell Shakespeare's upcoming production of Julius Caesar. If you haven't listened to part 1 or part 2 of the interview, I strongly suggest you go back and do that. But if you're here for part 3, please enjoy. How is language used in the play script to convey
1: the playwright or director's intended meaning? Yeah, look, language is absolutely, is the, is at the center of this play. And I think more than in almost any other Shakespeare play, this play is about a formative language, language that through, through the performance of language, uh, people, ch- this is how language changes people. And then by changing people changes the world. So uh, so language in this sense is really, really active in, in this play. Uh, Shakespeare uses a dizzying array of rhetorical devices, which I'm sure all the students out there are gonna be busily uh, looking into um, dozens and dozens of them, especially in those um, uh, funeral orations. But I think one of, one of the, one, just to take one example, one of the things I love about the language of this play is that it is so direct. And um, and robust. So Brutus, for example, when he's giving us that wonderful soliloquy, it must be by his death. Towards the end of the soliloquy, he actually deploys four verbs on himself. So he tells himself to prevent, as in prevent Caesar's rise. Then he tells himself to fashion it thus. So he's literally telling himself to use use his own mind. To, to change and manipulate the situation so that he can justify killing Caesar. Fashion it thus, and he says, think him as a serpent's egg. So he tells himself how he should think, and then, of course, kill him in the shell. So four verbs, prevent, fashion, think, and kill, that Brutus deploys against himself in order to order himself almost into uh, into justifying the, uh, the assassination of Julius Caesar. He knows it's not a great idea. He knows that... Nothing really good can come from assassination, but somehow he's got to believe and he's got to convince himself that it is and that uh, and that's the right thing to do. A great example. What interrelationship exists between the acting, the directing, and the design? Mm-hmm. Yeah, look, I, I think acting, direction, and design have to be absolutely linked together. We work as one creative team. So as a director, really, I think it's my job to be almost an arbiter of offers. I expect my actors to come in and to have offers ready for the floor. So when they get up on the floor, they're not just standing around waiting for me to tell them what to do. They are actively involved in making choices about their characters, in movement, in voice, in making decisions about relationships. That then I as an outside eye can go, okay, great, this works. Okay, that not so much, okay, let's shift this around. I think the design team uh, are absolutely crucial um, to the process of putting on this play. Anna Treglowen, our designer, Nate Edmondson, our composer, and Verity Hampson, our lighting designer, will all be there in the rehearsal room with us, watching the rehearsals unfold, feeding in ideas, thinking about how our ideas on the floor will intersect with what they're doing in terms of design, lighting, or sound. And so we work really collaboratively together to make this piece. It's not... It's not the way, I mean, some directors kind of work in a top-down approach. They tell everyone what to do from day one and then everyone gets on with it. Um, I don't believe in working like that. I think it's got to be collaborative. Do the actors interrelate with the design concepts at all? Oh, very much so. And the actors have a lot to say about their their character in, in terms of how they're dressed. And things change throughout the rehearsal period. We might decide that the way a character is being played suddenly that costume doesn't really match what they're doing anymore. And so things can change during the rehearsal process. I mean, we are very lucky in our company that we can actually have our set in the rehearsal room um, so that the actors become comfortable with it. They're moving around it. They know their way around. Um, And the set itself throws offers out to the actors. So they they can look at it and see, okay, I could enter here. I could hide behind here. I could crawl up through here. Um, and so so that's going to allow them to be playful and do their best work.
0: You're still in very early stages of the process. Uh, do you have an idea of what the set will be at this point?
1: We have some initial, very broad ideas about the set. What, the way, I mean, just again, philosophically, I don't like sets with a lot of clutter. Um, I think this set should uh, be able to facilitate performance so that the text and the words can be centre stage, really. Um, so it's not going to be a busy set. Uh, I, like it, it, I like quite clean um, and and uh, and reduced and minimalist kinds of sets, so we'll definitely be heading in that direction.
0: Will your set incorporate height, especially for the two major
1: monologues of the piece? Absolutely. I love height on stage. That's one of my biggest things always when I'm starting a production is how can I get the actors up off the floor? Well, when I directed um, Romeo and Juliet, uh we, we, uh, we had a design that was just this huge set of stairs, these huge stairs that went up um, into the sky. And so, you know, with the different levels, we could create different scenes in different areas and different pockets of the stage. And then, you know, a could uh, fall off the back <laughs> of the stairs in a spectacular stunt um, during the fight. But yeah, absolutely. I, I love having height and different levels. Can you talk a little bit about the actor
0: audience relationship and how it's going to be manipulated, established, or maintained?
1: yeah, the actor audience relationship is really important, isn't it um, with Shakespeare uh, The actors have to be able to have that connection with the audience not not all the actors, not all actors um not not all the characters get soliloquies, not all of them get to connect with the audience, but the ones who do really need to find that connection, and that means. Uh, direct eye contact with audience members. Now, this show is touring to 28 different venues around Australia and so that's going to be a huge challenge. Some of them, like the Fairfax studio in Melbourne, um, the audience is kind of wrapped around the stage and it feels a lot more intimate. But some of the spaces we go to will be these cavernous um, and cross-arch theatres uh, where it's much harder to break that fourth wall and break through. But I'll be encouraging the actors to do it no matter what Um, There'll be moments when they're, you know, sitting on the edge of the stage, talking very intimately with the audience. Um, The audience is always acknowledged, I think, in Shakespeare plays and and always part of the action. And and we have to honour that and keep that. Do you
0: anticipate the actors actually leaving the stage to engage directly with the audience? Yeah,
1: I li- you know what? I, I like that. Some, some directors absolutely uh, can't stand I, I actually I actually quite like that. I reckon there might be, actually. I, I think there might because, um, you know, if you think about the way the Globe was, right? So this play was written in 1599, which is the first year that the Globe was built. So it's probably one of the first uh, plays performed at the Globe Theatre in London. And if you think about that, it was done during the day of the show. Actors could see the audience as easily as the audience could see them. They were down in amongst them. The, the audience were wrapped right around three quarters. So, look, I, I think the plays really come to life in that way. So, yeah, it, it probably will. Do you think you'll be keeping the heightened, exaggerated
0: style of Elizabethan theatre for this performance?
1: Yeah, I think so. Look, you know, I think we've got to remember that Shakespeare isn't naturalism. And and one of the great things to embrace about Shakespeare is that it's weird. It is. People are talking to each other in poetry. You know, when sometimes kids ask me, oh, yeah, but, you know, that's the way people spoke back then. No, it's not. It's not the way people spoke back then. These characters, and especially in this play, it's 95% verse. These characters are speaking in poetry. It's heightened language. Again, we have to honor that. And we have to find what's strange and, and weird and wonderful about that. So I don't want to reduce it to a piece of naturalism. I want it to be heightened. I want it to spark more questions perhaps than it answers. Would
0: clear examples of the heightened language be when Mark Anthony is talking or when Brutus
1: is giving his speech at the funeral? Yeah, look, absolutely. I mean, that, those funeral orations, uh, you know, that Anthony one is straight up one of the best speeches ever written in the history of Western drama. Um, the, the, also, what's what's going to be really important is is looking at the um, the argument between Brutus and Cassius. So well, one of the interesting things about this play is the uh, the breakdown of that relationship, how strong it is, and then how how it breaks down towards the end of the play. And uh, it, you know, again, that, that can seem incredibly naturalistic, but also uh, there's some there's there's heightened language in there. There are ideals that Brutus speaks. Um, that, uh, that are heightened and and uh, some of the imagery that he uses is extraordinary, so yeah we're going to have to honor all of that but but uh, even more it's the meta theatricality of Shakespeare that we really are um, are embracing here, I suppose. I mean think about the after after the, the assassination of Caesar, Cassius actually says, "How many ages hence shall this our lofty scene be acted over in states unborn and accents yet unknown. So he's saying that people in countries that we don't know exist yet, in accents that we have never heard yet, are going to be acting this, the play of this, of this assassination in years to come. I mean, what a cheeky little meta moment from Shakespeare. And then here we are in Australia um, in accents that there were then unknown in states that were unborn in those days doing this play. So, you know, it, it just comes full circle. It's extraordinary how, how Shakespeare does that. And, of course, Cassius and Brutus think that they're going to be portrayed in history as these great liberators and heroes. And, of course, it's much more complicated and and messy.
0: Final question, James. Do you have any tips for students before they come and see this production?
1: Yeah, so before attending the show, I reckon know the story of Julius Caesar. It's pretty, you know, as far as Shakespeare plays go, it's pretty clear and and it goes right through. There's, There's not really subplots. Um, however, it's just good to, to know the story because then you can relax. You're not worrying about, oh, who was that guy or yeah, what, what did that guy say? You can just enjoy the performances, enjoy the interpretation, the relationships on stage. Um, but also uh, what, what I love to do with, um, with these plays before, say, if I have students before taking them to see a show, uh, is to read some of the scenes out loud to each other. Not, not the whole play. I definitely don't sit down and try and slug through the entire play. Uh, And we'll be making edits in the play. I I, I make no apologies for that. (laughs) There will be edits. Um, But I would say it's definitely worthwhile reading out loud those big speeches from Brutus and Antony, and and talking about how they affect people and, and, and what techniques they're using. Read out loud the two scenes between Caesar and Calpurnia and then Brutus and Portia and discuss the differences between the way that women are portrayed in those two scenes. And, and the way that women have to try and work in order to get power in a very patriarchal society. Um, but more than anything, I would say the most important thing is to read bits of it out loud. And why out loud? Because I think that's the way it was intended to be. Remember, a script is just a blueprint. This isn't a novel. It's a, it's a play. So Shakespeare was writing four actors. So... When you hear the words out loud, you can hear how they work a lot better. You can hear the sounds of the vowels and the consonants when they're short and clipped and when they're long and rounded. Uh, All of these sounds, Shakespeare, I think, is just as interested in the way that sound of words um, affects us as the way that the meaning, actual meaning of words affects us. Well, thank you so much for your time today, James Evans. Anytime, no worries. Have a fantastic day. You too. See you, man.
0: Well, that was the end of part three of our interview with James Evans, the director of Bell Shakespeare's upcoming production of Julius Caesar. Bell Shakespeare's production of Julius Caesar will be performed between the 18th of July and the 28th of August. It will be performing around Victoria, but feel free to go to the Bell Shakespeare's website for more information which is bellshakespeare.com.au. Thank you to Eltham College for letting us record here, and of course to Aaron Searle for providing the music. Please do not hesitate in contacting us at asidepodcast at outlook.com. There are a number of episodes in the bank, so feel free to find one that tickles your fancy. Thanks for listening.